Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. Uh, Today, we have a special guest with us. Very busy person, so I'm super grateful that uh, Mr. Kyle Sherman, CEO of FlowHub, took some time out of his busy schedule and gave us some of his time. So thanks, man. Thanks for being on. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm excited to be here with you today. All right. So I listened to a bunch of uh, your content, your podcasts and interviews you're on. We were just talking about one uh, prior to this, but I, I'm not sure. There was only one that was really talking about where did you grow up and all that stuff. So I want to kind of dig into a little bit of your background. Uh, you're from Chicago originally. Is that the case? I am. Yeah, I was born and raised in Chicago in second grade, moved to uh, the Northwest suburbs. And that's, that's really where I, I grew up. Yeah. So are you a Ch- Chicago uh, sports fan as well? You know, I didn't grow up uh, watching sports. I was I, I was a guy who didn't go out and play sports. I spent all my time on a computer, actually, which ended up clearly paid off. In, exactly, in I was going to say. But, yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a public service announcement for everybody in Chicago or in Philly. I'm originally from Philly, but I, I live uh, I live in LA. But when the city is all about sports, sometimes the kid that's in his uh, room on the computer, maybe there's another direction you can go into, right? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, look, I, I played soccer, I think, when I was like a very small child, when it's not actually a, a sport, right? But that was about it. And I, I really, I think, if I recall the stories from my mom, 
correctly. I was the kid who would like be picking the dandelions uh, out by the, you know, by the goalie or whatever, not really paying attention. I actually, it's funny now, Len, I actually have a lot more respect for sports and and coaching in particular. I, I don't know if you've seen this series on Netflix called The Playbook, uh, but I'm loving these sports documentaries and really understanding how teams perform better. Uh, you can have these great players, right? But if you have a great coach, like how like how do you how do you stitch the team together to actually perform well? So like I actually have a, a, a huge respect for sports, but yeah, I didn't grow up playing any. Yeah, it's a, I, you hit the thing about coaching is so interesting to me because I think the word coach gets uh, tossed around all over the place. We're like, I'm a productivity coach. I'm this coach, you know. Okay, great. Uh, that's fine. And by the way, I was a coach. I was an ADD coach for executives for a while. So I'm, I'm putting myself into this category too. But I think there's something to be said about like the John Woodens and the, all these. And, and I was listening to this uh, one, I think Darren Hardy was wrote this book and he was talking about this commonality that a Lance Armstrong or an Arnold Schwarzenegger had. And it's about how they show up when they can't do any more. Like, it's burning, their body's burning. And the special thing that a coach, somebody in your ear can tell you, it can push a little bit more. And it's that a little bit more, one or two more reps, one or two more sets that makes like 80% of the difference. So it, it really sets people apart. And sometimes you need that that kind of push and a coaching, but real coaching to get you over the hump. And people know how to do that well, have been you know successful like the people I just mentioned now. So uh, you grew up in Chicago and then you moved to the suburbs. Do you have any uh, brothers or sisters? I have a little brother. He's an expat. So he he left the U.S. many years ago. I think he's been living in Sweden now for probably over a decade. Uh, he met his now wife who was coming to the U.S. every summer in high school. So they've been together for a very long time. But yeah, they have two kids. They're out. In, in Stockholm, Sweden. He works there. He speaks the language. Uh, we're both Irish citizens. So we actually also have, we're, we're dual citizens with, with the United States. So we have an Irish passport. So it allowed him to, you know, get access into the EU without, you know, without having to, to go through some onerous process. Right. So he's now, he actually has three, he's like the Jason Bourne, right. Of, <laughs> of, of like real life, right. He's got three passports, and uh, yeah, he's quite the worldly guy. Got his masters out there, and is it phenomenally successful uh, working out in Sweden? But um, yeah, yeah. So it's, we're, I, otherwise, it's just me here in the states. Uh, I'm the boring guy who stayed behind. <laughs> what was the age difference between you guys? We were two years apart. Okay, so you did you grow up pretty close? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 For sure. I mean, we were we were real buddies growing up. You know, I, I'm sure we had our our uh, our fights i don't recall those times um but we yeah yeah it was it was a really it was a really fun childhood you know we um we did a lot of exploring we we grew up in an area outside of chicago uh with quite a bit of land like you know our our particular property was probably about an acre and a half or so that we grew up on um you know which was like a, you know fairly unusual for a childhood i realized a lot of people grew up in cities and and stuff so we got to really ro- every property in our neighborhood was like that so you could like roam around in trees and and so we'd We'd have a lot of fun, uh, you know. As we got older, we played paintball, and and you know, and we were friends with so many kids in our neighborhood. So it was like a lot of fun just playing outside, and uh, you know. So when I was on a computer, I was outside playing paintball with my my little brother and and our crazy friends in the neighborhood. But it was a, yeah, it was a phenomenal child. A lot of creativity. You know, we could kind of our parents let us. It was so safe in the area, we could just kind of roam around. So realized, grew up very privileged in that way. 
you know? Yeah. I, I think it's, I have a daughter who's going to be 18 in January and the way that they hang out with their friends is not even close to the way I hung out with my friends. Like I was a latchkey kid. So you just go, you come home from school by yourself. You go out with your friends, you take the bike and you, and then you come home when the light comes on on the neighborhood. Nobody cared. Is it safe or not? Just come home. Exactly. You'd be out all day long in the summer, right? You'd just be roaming around doing your thing as a kid. And there's something so magical about that. And on top of that, my brother and I were actually homeschooled for about six years, I want to say. So from for, for me, it was about end of fourth grade until midway through high school. And that was a really great experience too, right? So it was just freedom to explore and learn in the way that that uh, was right for me as a person. And same with my brother. So we had a lot of freedom growing up. And I think that uh, that, that that was really successful for us. And now we homeschool our two oldest daughters. Uh, you know, And so it's, we're kind of passing along that that level of like openness to learning in a different way. Yeah, I, I mean, schooling... I'm, my daughter's been to private school for most of her life, so we're privileged also to have that. But I, I went to public school, and which was ridiculous. I was like, it's survival every single day. You go to school. Like I don't think parents understand the yes, you learn or you don't learn. But I went to a very violent school, so you're always watching somebody's going to do something to you, and vice versa. So there was a lot of violence in that. And I don't think people get that in the in the public school system. Yeah. Um. And then you moved to LA, right? From uh... I did. So yeah, I graduated high school uh, early. I was 17 and picked up and left right away to move out to, to California. It was after, it was interesting, actually, I really wanted to get into the entertainment business. I thought that that industry seemed really interesting to me, the creativity, the, the business side of things. And so I actually worked my way, I kind of weaseled my way into an internship on a movie called Stranger Than Fiction. Matt, uh, I was going to ask you that. You just, movie. you just, yeah, you just jumped ahead. I, I did. I was like, I wouldn't have surprised uh, Kyle with my research on his uh, <laughs> IMDb impressive. profile. <laughs> oh my gosh, and that was a fun experience. But that really is what actually led me to LA. So I, I did this film, turned eighteen on the set. It was just this phenomenal experience, you know, uh, working, uh, you know, alongside uh, this producer and director and. Uh, the producer really took me under a wing, Lindsay Doran. She was so nice. I think I was super annoying as a young kid. I was asking too many questions when we were supposed to be quiet on set. But, uh, it, you know, uh, it was really, they, they really, um, the, the crew and the team was so open. They, they like, really taught me. And I, the, the gentleman I was working for on set, we, we, we were running what's called Video Village, where the director, producers, actors sit and watch takes and you sit behind the scene. So I was in charge of all the technology getting all set up, the microwave antennas and stuff. And um, you know, I'm just like this 17-year-old punk that probably shouldn't have been there. Uh, you know, I trying to trying to understand this business and having really no fear, I guess, back then of, of communicating with with some of these, you know, now in retrospect, like very famous people and very successful people in the business. I I really wanted to go be out in LA. And so that ultimately is that, that project is what led me out to LA. And I actually never ended up going to college. I ended up like really exploring, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the entertainment business. And, and that led me on all sorts of crazy adventures, uh, which was really quite a, quite a lot of fun. And actually it's funny. I like in a very, in like some way, some, some time in LA, I started in, I think it was 2008. I started my, a podcast before podcasting was a thing with a, a roommate of mine who was on a, a television show called Weeds. It was on Showtime at the yeah. time. He played a character, Silas Botwin, dear, dear friend of mine. 
And, uh, and, uh, and so we, we started this podcast and we were, we were like top iTunes for a long time, but you know, back then, I think it was probably only a, you know, maybe a, a couple million listeners on, on iTunes back then, but it was like, you know, it was early days of podcasting. So there's some fun, fun experiences out there in, in LA, you know, exploring technologies and, and, uh, and in the business and, and all those things. So. Yeah, for, for sure. Did you get to hang out with Will Farrell at all? Of course. Uh, yeah, all, all the actors. Uh, I'll never forget Emma Thompson was, you know, phenomenally talented actress, was just the sweetest human being. And I'll never forget some of the interactions we had over. I mean, you know, we all worked together for many months and, and these, yeah. these sets are so fun because, you know, these, unlike software that kind of keeps going and going and going, right? You can keep, you, you can keep uh, maturing the platform and adding new things. A movie is A to Z, like you have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that's it, right? And then it's over. It's kind of like summer camp, so you get super close to people, uh, and it's a tight group. It's not like a giant group doing these, even these bigger films. So, yeah, I, I mean, just very fond memories of of being around, uh, you know, around all these really talented people, not just the actors, right, but behind the scenes talent as well. It was it was really cool, and really being being an intern working in the video village you are in the action. You get to see every take. You're, you're with the producers, the directors, like the casting folks. You're with the actors. You're not off to the side locking down a street as a production assistant. You're in the action. And that was just, it really opened my eyes to, uh, to you know, like what, what you could do creatively with, with marketing and films and, you know, and how great teams run. It was so cool to see how a director and the producers would run, you know, this crew of 150 people flawlessly you know you'd have to deal with last you know the entertainment business everything's last minute you know it's it's uh you, you think you're on to something and then like the location doesn't work out the same way or it's raining suddenly and you don't have so everything's like a scramble so you have to be tight as a team you know you can't perform well under those types of stressful conditions and so that was really fundamental for me to learn how great teams work together to see mark forrester and Lindsay doran run run the show there uh, such a great example, and I, and I had different experiences in the, in the movie. So very similar background uh, to you, and I moved from Philly to L.A. My ex-wife was an actress, and uh, I also was a, an executive producer in two films, but independent movies, meaning that I gave money, invested in, the, in these films. But the productions that I was involved with did not run like that at all. They were, they were all over the place. The director was yelling at people. It, it was not a well-organized team. So, so what a great example. And, and they ran out of money. And the one production, I, I actually had to go and get pro- companies' product placement so they can get other money. So it was this one movie, which was filmed in Serbia, and uh, he was in the psychologist's office. It was horrible. But we have to get a vodka company to sponsor. So for some reason, the psychologist has a vodka bottle of vodka on his table, which normally, you know, why would he be drinking vodka? But it doesn't matter. It gave him another 50 grand or whatever it is to help him complete some scenes. So, yeah, completely different experience. But also, you know, uh, brought me out to L.A. and and also got me in the cannabis business. So, uh, you know, tr- transitioning to cannabis, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were you had some physical conditions or uh, right. And then you, you were recommending cannabis for those physical conditions or was it something of like that? Yeah, actually. So, so it's a bit more complex than that. Yeah. It's a bit more complex. So, so, you know, in LA, as you know, I mean, you're, you're out there uh, as, as a young, as a young guy, right. It was kind of, that was my, you know, so much learning, like social learning and, you know, things that typically I think a lot of folks get in college. I, I didn't go. Right. So like I'm learning how to do things out there and, I, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun, right? Produced a bunch of movies and like I was 20 years old. I mean, did one yeah. for Lionsgate and, 
And, um, you know, what was Bo Gibson's like, icon productions? We did a sci, we still ended up selling that one to sci fi. But, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. We had like this, this great time. But through that, through those experiences, it's very lonely, right? And people go to LA uh, typically for self, like self motivated purposes, right? They're not going there selflessly, they're going there to kind of make themselves. And so you end up in a, in, a, in a place where socially people are out for themselves. Yeah. And that was really isolating for me. And I, I remember I, you know, I ended up dating this this woman out there and we, you know, we, we had a great relationship and we had broke up and it was, it was in my early twenties, right? It was, I got really depressed from that. And my, one of my friends said, Hey, you got to try antidepressants. I had a buddy who did that, you know, so I ended up going to see this doctor first appointment. Oh, here you go. Here's this, here's that. Right. And I'm like, great. I ended up taking SSRIs and, uh, you know, anti-anxiety, benzodiazepines. And these are, you know, at the time I had no idea what I was getting myself into, right? They don't tell you, hey, just by the way, it's going to be really hard to wean yourself off this stuff. And so after about a year and a half, my personality just felt different. I lost my entrepreneurial drive, uh, this, this um, excitement and, and, and uh, you know, just drive to get things done. And uh, that that freaked me out, and and I, I think I, I guess I just had enough self awareness maybe to go, hey, I, I want to get off these particular substances. They're not serving me, and so I went to just stop taking the, 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 these these medicines, and I realized that that wasn't a good idea. I had created a lot of physical pain for me, Len. I was having like brain zaps in my head, and they were flowing down my spine, just real, real strong physical pains. Uh, and you know, it turns out you really can't just stop taking these medications. You have to titrate them down. So I went to another doctor anyway. And I said, Hey, I want to get off this stuff. He said, no, you're, you're not going to get off this stuff. This is a, you're on this for life. We can switch up your medications. I said, what? No one told me that. I thought I was just going to feel bad. I wanted to just not be depressed for a while. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it turns out like, this is, you know, I often say like, I learned that prescriptions are subscriptions. It's a phenomenal recurring revenue business for big pharma, right? You get people on these drugs and you kind of like, yeah, sorry, you're on them forever. So, you know, look, I, I ended up going through this experience, researching online, I ended up on forums, found out other people were having similar issues trying to get off these drugs. And I, I ended up seeing, uh, do you remember the Sanjay Gupta special weed on CNN? Yeah, of course. Yeah. The Charlotte, uh, Charlotte's web. Charlotte it actually, it actually yeah. motivated my parents because my parents ended up kicking me out of the house for weed when they saw the documentary, they're like, Oh wait, maybe there is some, something medical about this. So they yeah. listened to Dr. Gupta. Yeah. yeah. I remember exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was, it It was, you know, look, I had my, I already had my weed card and, you know, my, my permission slip from the green doctor from Venice beach, you know? <laughs> uh, so I, I, I was using cannabis on and off, but I never really, I, I, I don't know. I just never really took it that seriously. And, and I never really thought about it, you know, fast forward to this, watching this documentary, I went, oh, wow, this is a medicine. I need to go find a strain high in CBD. So I went, of course I go and I go on this, this hunt to go find, I used a very rudimentary early version of weed maps back then. I was like very early, right? I think Justin had just started the company a few years prior and, um, you know, ended up finding a strain called Harlequin. And I remember going in and getting Harlequin. I bought a Pax vaporizer. I used that and, uh, and I, I used it three times a day and I weaned myself off these medications using Harlequin, a phenomenal strain. It's like 15% CBD, 5% THC, sativa, you know, leaning. And so it doesn't really put you down. And I got my body got used to it. Right. But it would, would take away those brain zaps, all that physical pain. And it was such an eye opening experience as an entrepreneur, because I'm going like, I fell in love 
with something for the first time that wasn't like I was forcing it. It was like this, it was this relationship developed with this plant and led me into this rabbit hole of learning about the racist roots of the drug war and really, you know, where this industry was really coming from and that this was just a plant. It was just a flower and has all this medicinal value, but it was only in recent years, 75 years of prohibition that, you know, that it was vilified so heavily. It led me down this rabbit hole of propaganda and government. And, and it just, it was like this really eye-opening experience on so many levels. It was, it really helped me grow up. And um, as an entrepreneur, I, I was like, look, I, I want to figure out how to make safe cannabis products accessible to every adult on planet Earth. This is ridiculous. People are going to prison. Mm. You know, this is what, right? How, how could this possibly be? I just was saved by this thing. So I, I went back on the forums, right? And I was telling all these people that I had been reading about, hey, you got to try cannabis. This worked for me. It will work for you. And it turns out it worked for other people. And, and I, I thought, well, you know what? I, this is maybe how I leave my mark on the world. And um, maybe we can change how society looks at, looks at these, you know, these substances. And, uh, and that really was the, the, the beginning of, of flow hub and ended up uh, in early 2014, picking up and moving to Colorado uh, with my, my wife. And we were pregnant. We found out we were pregnant and our, our daughter's due date was 420. And we were like, the universe is telling us <laughs> we're on the that's right awesome. track. You can't make this up. Yeah. So anyway, that, that's, that's how, that's how I got into the industry. It was really like going to LA and going through this experience and growing up there and, and like, you know, really becoming an adult. It was, uh, it was just a really kind of like, I look back on it. It was an awesome ride. Yeah. Um, but I'm grateful to be where I am now, you know? Yeah. So much, so much similarities. Uh, you know, I was diagnosed with ADD when I was in my teens, put on SSRIs, discovered cannabis. Then I, I actually did some work for a, a drug rehab facility that we're, we're doing a soft landing for uh, opioid addicts with phytocannabinoids. Uh, you know, Wade Laughter was the guy that actually brought uh, Harlequin to the States from uh, Vietnam. I got to meet him up in the Emerald Triangle. He brought the seeds back with him. So that's a phenomenal uh, cultivar. Uh, exactly. Really hard to find these days real medicinal, uh, you know, cannabis because everybody's moving towards high THC products. But that one Fully expressed, great terpene profile. You're absolutely correct. And the one you're real there's- piney. I, I think what I loved about it is it's so piney. It smelled like almost yeah. pine needles. Uh, yeah, you know? a lot of piney in there. But you know, one of the reasons why we, we started the company, uh, my company, Endocana Health, is is for that personalized experience using uh, genetics. So we started discovering that two people can take the same cultivar and have a completely different experience. And also the drug interaction. We we started getting a lot of people who were getting off their SSRIs. Uh, benzos, by the way, are the worst thing to get off of. Uh, when when we were in the rehab, they were saying they will get the people off of opioids prior to trying to get them off uh, benzos. They're the worst uh, to get off of because your your brain gets used to these neurochemicals and your brain is lazy, wants to conserve energy. So it says, I'm no longer going to produce those neurochemicals because you found some other substance to do it. So let's rely on that. And when you don't get it, your brain starts sending signals throughout your body saying, no, give me more of that. And that's where you feel the inflammation, pain, all these different things. The withdrawals are, are pretty bad from those things. But they're horrible. Is, They'll kill you. The withdrawals yeah. will kill you. I mean, oh, look, opiates are opiates themselves will not kill you. The withdrawals won't kill you. It's three days of hell, right? That's the truth. Yeah. Opiate withdrawals, like opiates themselves are, are dangerous, right? They, they, they will stop you from breathing, but in small amounts, they're actually, it's not actually that dangerous of a substance. It's, a, it's another vilified substance. And especially in its full plant form, right? Mm-hmm. Which comes from opium. 
right? It's, it's actually like a, a fairly safe substance, highly addictive, but fairly safe, right? You can get dependent on them quickly. However, the withdrawals aren't actually that bad, right? It's, it's a flu-like symptoms for three days. Benzos, to your point, it could be a year-long battle from hell where you have the most ins- – I mean, I did it. I've, I've been through it. It's awful. Yeah. And it's actually very similar to alcohol. Benzodiazepines can be used for alcohol withdrawals, right? And as we know, that will kill you too. And it's because of your GABA and you know the stress it puts on your body. To your point, it's it, some of these substances are are incredibly uh, you know valuable, but also incredibly toxic. And so it's you know benzos have their place, right? But I mean, yeah, you you, you they're meant for very short term use, and and I was prescribed them daily. Yeah, I well, mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, I love what you just said—the subscription model because that's our model in the United States is just that. I mean, you create, you created a system that actually creates a lifelong uh, subscription, and uh, that's why the pharmaceutical industry. Hey, two thousand and eight, when every you know all the other uh, all the other I guess industries were going down, uh, the pharmaceutical industry was doing fairly well because whether you're depressed or you're anxious, there's a pill for it. And by the way, if you have withdrawals or you have some side effects, there's a pill for that as well. So it's a it's a really nice uh, subscription model for them. So you move the car out the time. Yeah. I was real quick. Half the time. Yeah, yeah. These don't even work. I mean, if you look at the uh, you know efficacy of, of an SSRI, it is minimal. It's like de minimis. The, the, the efficacy of an SSRI is like sub seventeen percent, right? Yeah. And that, that's really bad. But look at how often they prescribe it like candy, right? So it's just you know with, with look, it works for some people, right? There's some subset of the population that does help. Right? I don't want to. I don't want to minimize the, the the value of some of these substances, but we overprescribe them. I mean, you know, what's important in life, right? This is where psychedelics are incredible. You know, we're seeing the work Maps is doing with MDMA. You see, you know, what's happening with psilocybin and the research, you know, that we've seen on LSD coming from from the fifties and sixties. Right? These substances help you work through problems, and so unlike a, a subscription model, you take them one time, a handful of times, you know, in the right environment the right set and setting you could work through the pain that's causing the root cause of the depression and then you can get rid of it and you can live a normal life we're not meant we're as, as animals we're not meant to be you know on prescriptions forever it just is not where that's that, that's just not right now there's there, there's certain medicines right of course you know people that need insulin and other things are these are life-changing life-saving things that absolutely are incredible pieces of modern technology or modern medicine but it's um Right. I, I think the, the way we do it in the U.S. is just it's so broken. And well, uh, you're, it does you're speaking my language, man, uh, because, you know, one of the things we do is we look at treatment resistant depression. And you can see that over 30 uh, percent of the population has treatment resistant depression. They'll still be prescribed SSRIs. They, it'll never work for them, but they'll get all the side effects from the SSRIs too. And the one thing I was saying that people contact us trying to get off their SSRIs and they're taking phytocannabinoids with their SSRIs. Well, guess what? There's an interaction between phytocannabinoids and SSRIs. You shouldn't be taking them together in the first place. So people get themselves in, in all kinds of trouble by not understanding. And one of the issues is you know, not having a regulated industry, uh, the cannabis industry. Yes, we have some regulation here and there in, in the States. And I think I, I, I saw one of the interviews you were saying, it's like we live in 50 different countries. And I think people don't understand. It's exactly what I've always said. You go... We even speak different languages in different parts of, uh, of the country. And you can't compare people in Colorado to people in Alabama 
or vice, you know, vice versa. So it, it, it lends to a lot of different complexities. So not having a standard that we can all, you know, strive to reach that's uh, that's causing a lot of issues in in the industry as well. So hopefully, you know, the work that you guys are doing will help to be able to get the government to start looking at there is a way that we can do this safely, effectively. We can track everything that we're doing and all the way through the entire flow, you know. So anyway, I, I'm stepping ahead of myself because I'm I'm fascinated by what you guys are doing because I think it's a huge value add to the entire industry. But how did you actually come up with this model? Were you, I know you were working other companies in the cannabis industry. What was the problem you were seeing and, and trying to solve? I think the first step, right, uh, is you got to identify the problem. And so for me, we moved out to Colorado. And, uh, you know, I did all the research prior to coming to Colorado. It was funny, the first day, I mean, there's just all so much, you know, serendipity, basically. I pull up with, with my very pregnant wife in, in downtown Denver. I'd never been to Colorado, really. I never, like, really thought about Colorado all that much. But here we are. Get out of the car in downtown Denver to, to take a look around. We had rented a, a small apartment for, I think it was like a two-month temporary lease. And uh, and sure enough, I look up and I recognize this guy walking up the street happens to be Trip Kieber. And at the time, he was the founder and CEO of, of, of Dixie Elixirs, a big edibles brand. Uh, they were doing these drinks and he was all over CNBC at the time and really one of the you know early uh, drivers of, of the you know adult use industry and medical industry in Colorado. So I ran up to him and I said, hey, man, you know, look, he said, whoa, who are you? How do you know who I am? And I said, Trip, you know, I've, I've seen your interviews. I, uh, I'll literally come work for you. I just like, I want to learn the business. And we became good friends and I ended up doing some consulting work for them on the, on the marketing side and some social marketing uh, for, for them. And just really, I spent a lot of time talking to Trip and he'd take me through the Dixie Elixirs, uh, you know, uh, you know, I don't call it a factory, the warehouse, right, where they were right. produced, they, you know, their, their MIPS facility. And um, I just learned a lot there, right? He taught me a lot about the space and, that led me, I called Justin at Weed Maps or sent him an email or something. I said, Hey, like, I'd love to work with you guys. You know, I've used your product in California about here. He's like, Great, cool. You know, and so I ended up doing some consulting for Weed Maps at the time. And then uh, ultimately met a gentleman named Matt Berger. Uh, and he was uh, the creator of a, a really old school strain, uh, Bubba Kush. Uh, pre 98 Bubba, as it's now known, if you could still find the uh, F1 genetics. But I, uh, I, you know, Matt owned a, a dispensary uh, a MIPS facility where we manufactured bait pens in a grow facility. And I said, hey, I'd love to come work for you for free. Uh, and he said, oh, I'll, get, I'll pay you hourly. And I ended up running compliance for them. And it was there that I really started to to wrap my head around. This was mid-2014. I sort of wrapped my head around uh, what it meant to be a vertical supply chain in, in this space, what it meant to run a dispensary. And Running compliance, I was working with this little program called MITS at the time. It's now called Metric. Uh, there was no APIs. So we, we had a team of people scanning in items and reporting to the state manually. And I ended up write, like writing these macros to, to do that automatically. So I, I bought a Bluetooth scanner, connected to my iPhone. I, you know, basically would scan items into this little applet and, and I'd use that to generate, uh, these macros on the system, you know, on the PC to uh, auto fill in you know, information. It wasn't always the most accurate because you're like using macros in a web interface. Like, but the, the idea was I started to prove out what ultimately became our Nug devices, handheld 
uh, device that would you could scan in tags and and, and do things like that. But um, you know, originally this idea was kind of like we're going to build, grow, manufacturing and retail tracking software for dispensaries, grow facilities, and, and manufacturing facilities. Um, and so I started lobbying the Department of Revenue, linked up with a bunch of uh, you know uh, retailers that are now some of the largest retailers in Colorado, but back then, right, one two locations, and really just started to like get my hands super dirty. Really understood the problem set. Okay. You know, the big problem, the reason these retailers can't scale is they don't have software to help them scale. They can't report data automatically. So I had to go lobby the state and say, hey, you need to open up APIs to your state system. And that allows two systems to talk to each other, right? I, I don't want to report manually anymore. We can report aut- automatically. And I showed them what the, this prototype NUG device. Anyway, by 20, early 2015, I officially founded FlowHub. And the name came from Workflow Hub or Flower Hub. It's the center of 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 your supply chain ultimately evolved that by 2016 into retail only got first endpoints uh, to metric launched door to door sales around Colorado with my wife and uh and we turned it into the the you know being one of the leading companies in, on the tech side of the, the industry today and we power uh, retailers across uh, the United States have a fairly decent market share i guess at this point um but we we uh, we come from the roots of of the first state and adult use in, in this industry, and uh, that's been really formative, I think, for our culture as an organization, uh, because we're we're not jumping in here to make a bunch of money, and we didn't uh, we didn't get into this space uh, to 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 get in and get out, and we you know really building with longevity and for the right reasons, and you know one of our values as companies we love cannabis at Flow. You don't have to smoke it every day, you don't have to use it every day, but we love cannabis. We love this plant, what it means. And we love, uh, I think we're pretty radical at Flow Hub. You know, we, we look at uh, a future where safe cannabis products are going to be accessible to every adult on planet Earth. How do we do that? Right. How can we be a part of that? And, and uh, I, I feel like we're, we're pretty radical in that none of us agree with how the government, uh, uh, what the government's done with the war on drugs. And we want to stop that. Um, you know, for me personally, it's a lot more than just cannabis. I want to see uh, all drugs. Uh, available to all medicines available to to humans um, in in some regulated fashion, some safe fashion. You see what's happening. Even you know, I, I, this is radical, right? But I, I think opiates need to be legal. Um, I, I think full spectrum opium needs to be available to people if they so desire uh, to use it. Um, and it's it's a shame that we have we again. It's another drug war. You know, granted, like doctors shouldn't have been pushing it the way they were. It was marketed poorly. Uh, but these are, you know, they're just taking alkaloids from a plant essentially and, and giving you the whiskey of, of opiates, uh, you know, this really strong singular, you know, it's like, it's akin to taking THC, stripping away every terpene, everything else. And you just have a pure THC, you know, product that, that is a very uncomfortable experience. And that's really what, uh, modern pharmaceutical opiates are like. And, and so, you know, look like th- these, these drugs are only, uh, they're dangerous because people aren't educated about them yeah. and they're not regulated properly. So the reason people die for opiate overdoses tend to be because they're mixing them with other substances and they're usually tainted with fentanyl coming in from, from, our, from, you know, outside the country. And these are unregulated substances. Like, and, and it's just not fair to consumers who are going to take the, these drugs anyway. Uh, I look at models like Portugal or Switzerland where they, uh, they, they, they've done a really good job managing, right? They've got, uh, safe distribution sites and and people that are going to use these these medicines are going to use them. That's just the reality of the situation. The law is not going to change it. 
uh, and it's important to educate people. So anyway, I like I digress a bit, but it's no, no, I, you do, you, I have a you're pretty radical it. view on on these medicines. You know, I, I don't think it's radical people. at all. I think we're aligned on that vision too. And you hit the nail on the head uh, as well by talking about these uh, isolated molecules. I mean, the, the pharma industry tried during the AIDS epidemic to synthesize and create Marinol and some of these other products. Same thing. They don't. They didn't have. They didn't have the same effect. Because you're isolating molecules, synthesizing and creating it, they don't understand the plant has over you know 400 different components, and it's how synergistically the plant works together with your body. And the same thing with all these other. <clears throat> I don't think people understand drugs in general how they work. Like I had this conversation with somebody about cocaine, and I said, "There's nothing wrong with cocaine because what happens in your body is if you consume." Cocaine, it binds to your uh, receptor, your dopamine receptor, and it squirts 100 times more dopamine than you normally would, uh, you, you, that you would normally secrete by yourself unless you were doing, uh, you know, something that secretes dopamine, and then it blocks the reuptake of that dopamine. So you have all this dopamine that's there. Right. And then the, the biggest challenge with that is then when it does disappear, your brain's like, wait a second. I don't have to create this. I like this. Give me more of that. So there is a way to be able to balance it out. But if we have a receptor site for it and there is a safe way to use it, you're just secreting your own neurochemistry. And that's what we're really feeling. It's not the drug. It's our neurochemistry. Uh, I think it's a great Right, You're affecting your neurochemistry. And it's it's amazing. Like we should be able to change our perception. We should be able to experience these things. It's part of the human experience. And, you know, I've studied it. I've read a lot of books on opium. And it's amazing the history there, right? I mean, this is a like the the, the full plant spectrum of of the you know the, the poppies that produce uh, you know this these chemicals is just it's incredible like what this drug can do. And the only reason it's illegal like, again, you go back to the racist roots. Why is opium illegal? It's because of Chinese immigration. Why is marijuana illegal? Uh, because of the Mexicans. Why uh, you know why is cocaine illegal? Uh, because black people used it, uh, you know, why, like, I mean, come on, we're right. vilified. The reason these are illegal and vilified is because of, of race. And that is ridiculous. That is uh, such a shame. And it's really only the last 100 years or so that this has been kind of baked in globally into uh, the psyche. Now, not every country, not every culture is the same, right? There's still these substances that are, that, that people are open to in other countries, like at ayahuasca and Peru, right? But but I, I mean, I, it is disgusting what we've done as as humans across uh, all these countries because these are medicines that really have amazing potential, and uh, and we're, we we don't even study them in, in that full potential, right? Again, we're studying isolates that have we're, these are full plants. There's real value in the full plant spectrum products, and it just it's such a shame. And then to look and to look at how many communities have been destroyed by the drug war. Uh, simply because of race. It's just ridiculous. And, you know, I say this as a privileged person sitting here talking to you today, and there's people sitting in jail right now who, uh, you know, uh, who've been caught with a joint and they're still in there. And it's just, it's fucking ridiculous and it's got to end. And that's, so that's part of my MO in life, right? This is this awakening of going through this process personally. Uh, it's, I, I want to see the, the world that looks a bit different, a little more open-minded, um, you know, and, and uh, frankly, I, you know, I, I think, I think a lot of people don't like control and they like being told, you know, you go through going back to the school system real quick, you go through such a structured thing in life growing up, right. As a society, you're told these things, this is how you live. This is how you do things. This is what you do. You work until you're 65 and then you retire. And then right. That, 
uh, you know, there's generations of people now that are, have been basically, uh, you know, there's this, there's this kind of culture baked in their psyche of control. And uh, it's a shame because it minimizes creativity, you know, entrepreneurial drive, new ideas, discovery. And so, uh, you know, all these things, you know, it's just, it's, it, you know, I want to see a more open society. Uh, and uh, this is why we homeschool our kids, right? It's why we believe in a more and, and, uh, you know, anyway, I, I, again, I digress, but I, this is, I could go on for hours with you. Like, yeah. We, we should definitely talk about that. Cause you and I are, I wrote a whole book about this, by the way. So I, I am, I used to be the president of the cannabis action network fought for legalization, all that stuff, but it, I don't want to take time uh, away from you to talk about, it, but the, we are completely aligned and there is a way to, to be able to do this and, and do it through science. And the reason, one of the major reasons why we're looking at these isolates, because the system, the FDA system of clinical trials, they're, they don't know how to do it any other way. They all, you know, you look at Epidiolex, okay, like there's one product went through, but it's another molecule. You know, the, even even two molecules in Sativax really was complex for them. So looking at something like that is uh, is going to be a big challenge. But I want to make sure that for the for the time that we have, uh, I want to ask you about Maui and about what you're doing with uh, with Flow Hub and the you know what what is Maui? Flow Hub Maui, <laughs> oh, man. You know, um, so w- when I started the company, Len, you know, there was one state, one example, um, and we had to make a lot of guesses back in 2014, 2015, about what the future of the industry would look like. Look, the bet back then was, we're going to bring this to the masses. More states are going to open up and legalize for adult use. And they're going to copy the Colorado model. Uh, they're going to have, you know, you know, MITS or metric now, as it's known. And uh, it's going to look the same. Like, why not? Every state's going to copy this model. It works. Look at it, you know. And uh, we couldn't have been more wrong in many ways. I, right? So we, we made some good guesses, right? But, but frankly, you know, we had to do so much work entering new markets. Oregon legalizes, you know, you're going to Alaska, Michigan, Maryland, right? Over all these years. And because of all the early guesses we made in the platform, we got some things wrong. And, uh, you know, the data structure and these other things. And so um, we really had to take a step back a couple of years ago and go, Okay, so we got this far. <laughs> how do we how do we bridge now the next ten years? How do we make sure that we can take our partners, our customers, to the next level? And how can we make sure we're responding to the needs uh, of our retailers um, because they're on the front lines? They're doing the real hard work. They're the ones who are providing the medicine to, to the consumer and giving that experience. So if we can help make their lives easier with technology, then uh, then uh, even easier than we had already had, that, then we can help continue to, 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 you know, see this vision, which is making safe cannabis products accessible to every adult on planet earth. Right. So flow of Maui really is this idea that, uh, it's, it's a new product. It's this idea that we like, look, we're going to, we're going to start over. We're going to like build from scratch. It's ridiculous. Everyone says, don't do this. Right. This is like the, it's actually like a lot of people say this is the dumbest thing you could do, uh, as a founder is like, go and actually rebuild something. They always say, you know, take one thing at a time and change it. I wanted to be a bit more radical, as, as you probably figured out I am at this point. And I said, let's just rebuild the damn thing. Like, I, I don't want to take things off a chunk at a time. There are things we could do fundamentally from the most basic level 10x better. And by rebuilding, we'll never be able to move fast enough uh, in this industry to keep up with the ever-changing regulatory you know, schema that's happening across the states. And for, for the listeners who don't know, Len mentioned this earlier, right? We, we, we live in a world where in the United States specifically, 
uh, where every state acts like its own country. These are you, you can't ship items from California to Oregon and Oregon to Maine and Maine to right. It, it, you have to grow, manufacture, and sell the cannabis in the single market. And so every state goes like, man, eh, I'll do it better than the last one. No biggie. We're going to change a bunch of stuff. We're going to tax THC this way, and we're going to do this and that, and you know, and and uh, we're going to create this crazy transparent supply chain that you know. I always say we track. I think you heard this in my Fox Business interview. We track cannabis better than we track uranium at this point in the United States, I, I think. So um, it really is true. I mean, this industry is, for a flower, it's just ridiculous, right? And it's a very safe substance. I mean, you think you can just sell the damn thing on a shelf. No, I mean, you got to go through this. So anyway, full of Maui is, is a, a labor of love for the team. And it's, um, it's now launched in five states on the East Coast. We officially announced September 20th of this year. And it's just, it's 20 times faster than Flow Hub Classic. It has a ton of new features, uh, and it's named after the legendary strain Maui Wowie, one of my favorite sativas. Uh, energizing, uh, you know, um, you know, euphoric, phenomenal high, and um, and so we felt like that was, you know, we wanted to bring a little bit of fun back into cannabis in the early days. By it was the way, a lot just of fun. Inter- interrupt you for one second uh, because uh, the thought's going to escape me. But Maui Wowie, the original, had the most. THCV naturally in that single uh, cultivar. And what we did was we ended up breeding it out to breed more THC. So now that we're discovering, wait, THCV is an interesting cannabinoid. How do we get that back? Should have never bred it out of Maui. It's incredible. Should have never uh, bred out of Maui. Wowie. <laughs> yeah, it is an incredible cultivar. I mean, this is why I, I felt like it was, it was the right thing to do. We had to, we had to name, and who doesn't want to go to Maui, by the way? I mean, what a beautiful place on planet earth. And so, I just, you know, it brings some joy into the industry. I think, look, the industry got very serious here for a little bit. I, in the early days, it was a lot of fun. You know, I remember, uh, you know, I think it was in 2015 or 2016, uh, going on to CNN and saying, hey, we let our team use cannabis in brainstorming sessions. And it was like, whoa, this went global, right? This big story. <laughs> Jimmy Kimmel's talking about Flow Hub and how we let people use cannabis at work. Uh, you know, in his monologue, and it's just it ended up everywhere. It was on all the news channels, and for like two weeks, this story dominated. Uh, the, the, you know, this kind of global narrative around cannabis legalization and the, the, this, the, the what Colorado was doing. Um, but you know, uh, yeah, I, I think like a lot of that kind of went away after like the fun of the industry kind of died down. It was very serious. The suits came in, and like we kind of lost some soul. And uh, and so Flow Hub Maui, I felt like it was our duty to try to bring back a little. A little bit of the good vibes back I into the it. space, and uh, and so yeah, so that, yeah, so Flow Maui is a, a lot of fun. Retailers are loving it. We're getting great feedback, uh, and it's it's the platform that we're going to continue. The foundation will continue to build on as an organization for for the next decade. You know, so uh, we're we're really excited about the the platform. The team has just done such a phenomenal job. Um, you know, getting it out the door and getting yeah. it shipped. So really right. proud of the organization. And well, congratulations. And, uh, I mean, it's a yeah. big thing. And, and also, I think you, you just said, hey, you know, starting from scratch, you know, people are like, you're crazy doing that. But the investors don't seem uh, to be like, you're crazy. You're, you're, get, you're able to raise capital in this insane market where it's very difficult to raise capital. I mean, I, I remember raising our first Series A in early 2019 it's way more difficult to raise our Series B in, uh, in nowadays, but you've uh, you've had some success. Uh, what's what's your secret? Just tell me. Nobody else is listening. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, 
it's interesting, right? Like bridging, uh, being your authentic self and, and, and bringing that into a business and telling a story. I mean, it's look raising capital, uh, selling, uh, creating things, stories. It's all, you know, it's funny. Like I, I, I go coming from entertainment. Um, it's all storytelling, right? It's, it's telling a compelling story and stories are really important, right? It's how humans communicate. It's how we share information and, um, great stories are memorable, right? And they're shared audibly. We look at like Homer's Odyssey. That was originally an, an audible story that was communicated. There was never written down for, for a long time, right? That was, that was a story that was communicated audibly and shared generation after generation. And it took on its life and morphed over that time. But you look at stories and it's a really fundamental part of the human experience. And so uh, I, I think, you know, when, when you're out fundraising, you have to be able to tell a really compelling story. And it's not like it's a false story, right? So to be clear, right, you're not like, t- you're not telling a false story, but you have to sell the future about where you're going. And that's where, it, and, you, and you have to be able to convince your team, uh, you have to convince customers that that's where you're going. And, and ultimately you will go there, right? Like you, like that's, that's your job as a visionary leader is to like help drive the journey. And it's uh, along the way, it's uncomfortable and it's a journey and you come across really tough patches and, you know, from the outside, everything looks super glossy, right? It's perfect, right? Oh my gosh. Flowhub is a perfect company. Like it's amazing, but really, you know, companies are full of challenges and, and it's, it's a journey. And, uh, and so you're telling these stories about where you're going and, and, uh, and that's, I think what makes successful fundraising happen is you attract people to the story and, and to your narrative. And then you go and you have your team execute that narrative. And when you deliver those results, you can raise more money because you, you, you said you were going to go do those things and now you did them and now you're back to, to, to deliver them. You don't always get everything right, right? You stumble along the way, you make mistakes. That's like a normal thing, right? Yeah. But um, you, you, you know, you, you have to be, you, you have to be, you know, um, you have to be focused on, on making sure you're staying the course and telling good stories. And so, uh, I, I think that's what makes successful fundraising successful. Um, so, you know, look, I, I think at the end of the day, like, it's also, we got to remember, it's not about raising capital at the end of the day, right? That's just part of helping you achieve some ultimate vision, right? For us, it's making safe cannabis products accessible to every adult on planet earth. We need capital to do that. We're on our way to do that, but we have to generate revenue. And so, you know, there's a, the business side, right? And you have to put these two together and, and that's part of the story, right? So, you know, but look, capital isn't the most important thing. It's just important if you need it to get the next thing done. You do need to build a stable company that can scale. And this is where, you know, you could get lost in fundraising too much capital, right? Where you go on the path of getting too much money and then you're like, oh, let's just spend it on all these things. And you end up in a- <laughs> That doesn't happen in the cannabis business. I've never seen that with a company that raised all this money and spends them on Lamborghinis and uh, uh, helicopters and all that <laughs> stuff. <laughs> right. I mean, this industry is strife with craziness, but, <laughs> but you know- there's there's a way to do it reasonably and and um I, I think it's a really important to have a long lens if you're if you're trying if you're an entrepreneur or you're trying to start something right um from nothing right you really want to know well, why are you doing that like what's the reason behind it and then like where do you want to go with it ultimately is it just to make a lot of money because if that's your goal you're going to fail right like that's like you can't just go at, like i i've learned this right as an entrepreneur like i didn't know that early on but it's clear to me now that if you if you want to do great things and you want to convince people to go along the ride with you, your employees, your investors, your spouse, your your whoever, right? It's an adventure and it's a commitment. You've got to have a really long term vision. So for us, again, we want to make safe cannabis products accessible to every adult on planet Earth. We'll probably never achieve that, but we're going to do our damnest to try to get there, right? And so th- that is something that will hopefully live in our DNA for 
you know, the next 150 years, whatever, right? I mean, as long as we're in business. Uh, but that type of longevity and long thinking, I think, is is really important for entrepreneurs to have and to be successful in, in trying to build something. Agreed. So how do you, how do you reward yourself? It, it's very difficult to be a CEO in the cannabis space, especially, and to be the passionate CEO that you are because you're also the, you know, out front of the company. There's a lot of CEOs who sit behind their desks and they let somebody else, you know, do the talking, but you're, you're that CEO. How do you, after, you know, a successful raise and, you know, Jay-Z uh, inviting you to the studio and letting you uh, hit a couple of bars on his track, how do you reward yourself afterwards? <laughs> um, that's a really good question. I, over the years, I, I like after a big fundraise, I'll typically rent a cabin for like a week and a half or so. Uh, no technology allowed, no Wi-Fi. Um, and I will journal and read a lot of books and think uh, about the next steps. Um, and I've done that fairly consistently and it's been pretty successful. Um, I use psychedelics usually about once a year. Uh, and I will go on a journey to to try to understand um, myself better and the company better and our society better and my family better and try to just try to like, it's, it's like, you know, I always say it's like 30 years of therapy in, in like 12 hours. Um, and so that to me is that it's been fundamental in, in my growth uh, personally. And I, I feel like it's somewhat of a reward. Um, I, I think, you know, it's funny, like on the more, on the more kind of like day-to-day things, I've found a lot of joy in um, playing Xbox with my oldest daughter and my two little kids. So we have a four, six and eight year old and my uh, eight year old and I will play these puzzle games. And then we, you know, our, our four and six year old will watch and they participate, right? But they're not actually controlling. Sometimes they will, um, but we'll all play together. And we spend time doing that. Um, we'll go on hikes and spend time outdoors, um, which is fun. During the pandemic, we we moved to Hawaii for a little over a year and spent time there as a family homeschooling. And we, the company was remote, right? So I mean, I, it was it was kind of crazy. I was waking up at like very, very early in the morning. It was like 4 a.m. to you know 4 p.m. days. Uh, but from 4 p.m. on, I, I got so much time with the kids. So we'd go surfing, you know, with the kids. We'd go scuba diving or whatever. We, you know, it was just this amazing experience. Um, got really close to my closer to my wife than ever, right? So just I try to I try to spend time doing that. But I'll, I'll tell you, I'm like I, I think I'm a little bit crazy in that I, I I'm pretty obsessed with what I do. So I there are days that like I will wake up so early, lad, and then I like don't go to bed till midnight. I just like do these crazy runs of just. You know, my wife is so amazing, right? She's like the best friend ever to have. Uh, she she she's so supportive, right? She'll like take the kids, and she kind of knows my process. But I get into this like super crazy mode for a while. Sometimes I like kind of like block out everything else and kind of get horse blinders on. So I try to like I try not to do that all the time, so I don't burn out. But you know, try to have that fun in between. So it's like, yeah, man, I'm still learning. Like, right? I don't think I've like figured anything out really, but. I, I, you know, I'm trying to. I'm trying to figure it out. So yeah, you never do, man. But you follow your passion. I'm, I'm the same way. Very similar kind of thing. Where I wake up, I just love what I do, and that drives the whole. And I think that sets an example for the entire company as well. If you're doing that, well, it motivates other people to follow along. So I, I know we're low on time, and I, I I need to get you back at some point. But I, I always ask my guests these questions, so uh, I, I'll go through the list. Very difficult uh, question, so just get ready. Uh, please describe your your first experience with cannabis. Okay, high school. I was I was with uh, a buddy in high school, 
I never tried cannabis. I was so uh, curious about it. And and yeah, I had my first joint that was higher than I could ever imagine. Like, I vaguely remember it, actually. I was like so high, you know, uh, but I think like a lot of people, like high school was my first time. But it was a good experience. It wasn't a bad experience. It was like, okay. I didn't really, it's you know, okay. honestly, like in high, I don't, I wasn't really that into it. Right. Like what I yeah. wasn't like my thing really, like also like, you know, all that cannabis back in the day, it was just like so bad. Right. Like you don't know what was sprayed on it. It was, it was always like harvested way too early. So it was super racy. The terps weren't there. You didn't get the full, well-rounded, really nice, relaxing. Like it wasn't relaxing to me. It was just like, dude, this is like pretty I remember being kind of psychedelic actually. Right. Like it was like this guy kind of like out of body experience, but like, I wasn't actually that into it until I was in LA and I, I started to try, you know, flower coming from Humboldt and outdoor, you know, full spectrum. Like you got real terpy flower. And I thought that was like, pretty, it would help me sleep. But like, again, I wasn't even that into it then. It wasn't until I used it as a medicine and the, the efficacy just like showed its full colors. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is something that, uh, that you know, I, I, I'm I've I've been loved with. <laughs> I love cannabis. I go through phases still. Like I'll take you know when we were in Hawaii, I, I didn't use uh, cannabis a whole lot actually. Like I, I uh, for whatever reason, I just was like it was I was on a long extended tea break. I think I used it a handful of times there. But uh, yeah, so that that pattern I've noticed too. And I'll switch up edibles, with flour with maybe some concentrate. You know, some really nice saltless concentrate every now and again. Like I just don't, I like it all. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, so, I'm with you. All right, so I'm a big music guy, uh, so I have a couple music questions. Do you remember what the very first concert you ever attended was? Like a big name concert? Uh, whatever comes to mind, even if it's not the very first one, it's the one that you remember. Well, it's funny. My brother, so my brother was a phenomenal violinist growing up. He had taken violin lessons since he was single digits, right? Like very young. He was phenomenally talented at music, and he'd write amazing music. He, um, he, we, like we we'd go to these like more classical concerts that he'd play. And I remember from like very young age. So like those were, the, I was exposed to like a lot of classical music early on. And that, that was, uh, those were like my first probably like actual concerts. But like, I remember going to like Dave Matthews band and stuff when I was, I think it was in high school probably. Um, and those were like much bigger shows. What, what was the, the last one that you attended? If you remember, uh, there's a Rufus show at Red Rocks, probably okay. Rufus Del yeah. Sol. I think, yeah, I, I want to say it's probably the last one. Uh, maybe Big Gigantic, phenomenal artist. I one of those. That I, was, I, I, actually, I, that was my next question: is that if there was anything that you're listening to that's interesting that you want to share with people that they should check out? Well, we have a flow of Maui playlist on on Spotify, so there's some there nice go. Hawaiian uh, inspired. There's going to be artists on there you've never heard, but are local to Kauai and, and the Hawaiian islands. And, and, uh, you should take a listen to that Floha Maui playlist, but let me look, let me look at my phone and okay. I'll tell you, um, I've been very into country lately. I love Grateful Dead as well, like Dead and Co and, and also yeah. some old Grateful Dead albums, but I, I've been really into country lately. I also have the top 100 songs in Zimbabwe, which I'm loving right now. Like there's just some real great vibes. This is Apple music, by the way. Um, so Goose is pretty great. I don't know if you've listened to Goose. I've been listening to a bit of Goose lately. Of course, Rufus is on here. Recent listens. So yeah, those are all my recent listens. But I have, I've been loving country. I mean, I like actually like I have a bunch. Ashley McBride has a new album that came out. Uh, this experimental album called uh, Lindaville, which is actually there's some decent tracks on there. My wife's from Dallas, so we've got we've got some country swagger in the fam. I tried listening to the new Taylor Swift album. My daughter loves Taylor Swift, Midnight's, but I, I have you listened to that one yet? 
A little bit. Yeah. My daughter played me a little bit of it. It's, uh, I have a hard time and I have a hard time with country also, but you know, here and there, some artists, uh, sound pretty good. Uh, Billy strings, you Billy strings fan. Uh, I haven't listened to Billy strings. I am familiar. I mean, Chris Stapleton's last album was, was pretty good. I mean, that's kind of as country as I, as I get, you know, I guess Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash and all that, but that's sort of crossover as well. I like Kazi J. She's she's a local artist in Kauai, Hawaii. K A Z I J A Y. She's she's got she's got some great tracks. Emily Brimlow. She's from Southern California. She's got she's kind of she's got this Jack Johnson kind of vibe. Those are some cool like some cool artists. I think they're both on uh, on the Maui the Flow of Maui playlist. Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm like real eclectic. I love all sorts of music. I love electronic shows. I think electronic music has to be. My wife and I, we really bonded when we were dating over dubstep and, you know, uh, we had a lot of fun going to lightning in a bottle and like, oh, you yeah. know, like great times, you know, For so. Sure. All right. So, uh, what has cannabis met in your life? What has it meant in my life? Wow. Well, you've got a lot, you've got a lot, uh, of that. I feel like that from the show, right. I it's, it's, uh, it's opened my eyes. Um, it's been a gateway drug for me and opening my eyes to a, a much deeper topic that is the war on drugs right so it's led me down some really uh interesting uh you know it's through some interesting valleys and figuring out you know the future that i want uh, i want to live in and i don't know yeah I, I uh cannabis has been really fundamental for me in many ways i think it's a phenomenal medicine and it's not for everybody right i think there's people who probably don't like but i i don't know it's been it's been uh uh a really special plant to me. That's clear. All right. Final question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. <laughs> Full of computers. I like, I was a hoarder of, of electronic machines. Um, I, you know, I was in a saltwater fish for a while. Like I thought that was super cool. So I had like a fish tank for, for some time with some like live coral and stuff. That was pretty cool. But you no, know, I, I really like was so into computers, man. I built, PCs. I had early Mac computers and I would program and, uh, you know, I, I just, I loved computers growing up. And so I had I, like, like if I showed you some pictures, you'd be like, wow, that's actually, you weren't exaggerating. You had a lot of computers. I mean, like I, I literally had multiple monitors set up and I'd have all my stuff. I mean, I had Linux, you know, distros running. And I mean, I was, I was, yeah, I was a little crazy with the computer no, stuff. No, but po- I, no posters know. on the walls or anything of that? No, like oh, I guess I, I poster. I, I, I had Bill Gates. I had, you know, um, you know what? I, yeah, I don't, I don't remember having a lot of. I mean, it's movie posters and stuff. I don't remember. I actually remember making a bunch of fake movie posters that I got printed at one point in high school. It was, it was probably about high school. Yeah. Because I'd, I'd been, I had like all this photography gear and stuff, and I was like, I, I loved making these these movie posters, and so I had like written some really, I think, terrible scripts. But like, Private Caller was a script about, you know, this private car that kept calling someone and there ended up being some murder. It was like this crazy, you know, thriller. And so I made like a poster for that. Uh, you know, so I, I would, I would design posts. I, you know, it's funny, like growing up, I never played video games. I, I spent some time in Thailand when I was 15, uh, during my homeschool period. I, I loved kind of like these Asian cultures. And I spent so much time uh, out there and it was really fundamental actually to who I am now. So I'm in Japan and stuff, but in, in, um, in Thailand, I would buy, I guess I could say it now, but I would buy like illegal copies of, of Adobe 
products. I couldn't afford them back then. So I'd buy like the, like that, the, the street vendors would sell these bootleg, you know, uh, pretty expensive pieces of software. So I learned Photoshop, like the er- very early versions. And, uh, and so I would, I was like a design freak as well. So like, that's, that was something that I was super excited. Like I had a lot, I do remember actually having a lot of, of pieces of art that I would like design on Photoshop and stuff. Um, so it was like my own, my own stuff. Yeah. I'd li- I remember on Christmas lights. Like, this is bringing back memories, man. <laughs> Got me with this one. Holy cow. That's um, great, man. That's, that's what it's about. It's about having that conversation. Uh, like I, I wish we could do this longer because I have so much stuff to talk to you about, but maybe we'll do a part two at some point when you raise your let's do it again. I'm down. <laughs> Yeah, let's do it again, man. I appreciate you having me on. This was a really fun conversation. And you, yeah, you were nah, a great interviewer. Thanks, and like, this was great, man. Nah, I appreciate you. it. Where, where can people find out more about Flow Hub, you? Where can they contact you? Social, website? So I'm mainly a Twitter guy. You know, I guess now with Elon Musk taking over the, you know, the Twitterverse, we'll see what happens there if that if that stays. You can find me at Kyle Sherman on, on Twitter. Um you know, you can uh, go to flowhub.com, F L O W H U B.com, and you have social links you can follow. We have a lot of great, if you're trying to open up a store, we've got some great content. Uh, we call it our Learn Hub, and you can go in and learn how to open up a store. You know, we've got free SOP templates and I, everything, you, you, you name it, like ideas on marketing. And, and so it's great resources there that we've compiled over many years. Um, but yeah, that, this is where you can find us, yeah, social, Flowhub, and at Kyle Sherman. Cool. Hey, man, thank you so much for being on. Really, really appreciate your time. And uh, we'll definitely do this again. Let's do it. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey, everyone. It's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.